Hello and welcome to the March edition of On The Horizon, a monthly podcast dedicated to helping you to navigate through the tricking world of golf turf maintenance by helping you to look and think a little further forward. I'm Henry Beshley from ICL. And I'm Glenn Kirby from Syngenta. And we're here to ask those difficult questions, such as, is it finally spring? How much will the temperatures swing? And will leather jackets cause my phone to ring? Yes, we're approaching that time of year again, Glenn. I think so, Henry. And um, there's some good news, though. After this podcast, we are only one month away from a full set of podcasts. Yes, indeed, Glenn. And hopefully it's a worthwhile exercise. I certainly enjoy doing it, if nothing else. And as we mentioned last month, we've promised this year to mix things up a little with the format. Yeah, and we've done that already a little this month, Henry. I've been chatting to a friend of mine, uh, Tom Stidder, uh, about mowing heights. Um, So we're already at it. A little bit of variation already. Perfect, Glenn. Anyway, it's good to know we've got 11 of these podcasts now in the bank, covering the challenges that each and every month is likely to throw at us. All of them released in advance of that month, giving you the chance to prepare and develop your own turf maintenance strategies. This month, we're talking about all the challenges that are on the horizon in March. So give yourself some time, grab a cup of tea, sit back, have a listen and prepare yourself for what is coming. Okay, Glenn, as always, we start the podcast by looking at the weather that might be coming our way. So, Glenn, what are the potential weather challenges that are on the horizon for March? Well, Henry, for those people that have just found us, number one, where have you all been? And secondly, this is a section where we look at the important nuances of the upcoming weather for the month we're looking at. You know, those things that have the potential to influence the agronomics of our turf grass management situations. Absolutely, Glenn. All the way through this process, it's become clear to me that the the weather that we might think is on the horizon is generally not borne out in the weather data. I think it's quite common for all of us to have, you know, quite a skewed or misconceived view about what the weather might be bringing um, in the next month. So taking a look at the data really helps us, doesn't it, you know, to ground our planning uh, properly. That's right, Henry. And March is a perfect example of that. Rather than just assuming March has been part of an unusually difficult spring, we like to look at the data for both of our locations to understand what the conditions are normally like for this time of year. You know, things that are going to help guide our advice and help you prepare better during that month. So hopefully um, we'll inspire you to pull out your weather data and have a look at your stuff yourself, because that's what really helps. Okay, so Glenn, what's in the weather data for March then? Well, Henry, as always, we start with moisture. And March continues to exhibit the same trends that we saw in February. The evapotranspiration rates continue to increase and the rainfall on average continues to decrease. We're we're sneaking up with evapotranspiration rates up to a kind of an average of 38 millimetres for both of us in March, Henry. 
Uh, that's a big jump from February's 21 millimetres. And there's a few years in the data set where we hit mid-40s, around 45 millimetres of evapotranspiration. That's an average of one and a half millimetres a day of moisture lost, which doesn't sound much, but it could certainly move us towards dry and crusty if those rainfall figures are low. Okay, well, that's on the hopeful side, Glenn, but what does a low evapotranspiration march look like? Uh, well, the lowest evapotranspiration rates I could find in my 14-year data set was 2013 for both of us, and we both saw 25 millimetres in the month of March in 2013. And 2013 is a year you're going to hear me mention a few times in this podcast about March, Henry, because in March we can see these very cold periods and, and, and they drive some very different climatic situations to what we normally see. OK, so was 2013 one of those years? Yeah, absolutely it was, um, along with 2018 as the more recent difficult march but 2013 was the true beast okay so we're going to be talking that one about that one a little bit later on indeed march is definitely the month of false springs and variable growth so let's talk about false springs later on in the podcast great but evapotranspiration's only one half of the moisture balance isn't it the other half being uh, rainfall or precipitation what's that looking like in march glenn well whilst evapotranspiration rate are on the increase rainfall is in its second month of reducing or at least stabilizing that's when we're looking at the averages uh, the month of march generally sends around 61 millimeters of rain for you in ilkley and around 55 millimeters of rain for us down on the south coast so we, we see that same kind of movement and continuation from February's trend. That's definitely a nice sort of stabilisation then, isn't it? And like February, there's some decent breaks in there too, Henry. Most years, us down south see an extended period of around 14 days with no rainfall in March. For you, the same pattern, but not quite as often. But you still see a good 14-day rain-free break in about seven of the last 14 years in the month of March. Yeah, that's... That is good, isn't it? So it feels like we might have some opportunities here with those sort of dry periods of weather creeping up. From a moisture point of view, anyway, on paper, it looks like a, um, a good news story. Glenn, are you are you skipping over the bad news at all? <laughs> well, there, there is always opportunity for bad news, isn't there? You know, mm. we can see high rainfall in March. Of course, we can. In two thousand and seventeen, you saw one hundred and eleven millimeters, which started a really bad run for you in Ilkley with two thousand and seventeen, two thousand eighteen, and two thousand and nineteen, all delivering over a hundred millimeters of rain. But that was the first year since 2008 you'd seen more than 85 millimetres though. And in fact, between 2009 and 2016, you'd only had one year above 65. So recent history may make March feel a lot wetter than it historically has been for you. Now, for us down south, we've seen 132 millimetres in 2018 and maybe one in four will be a wetter year for us. But three out of the four will tend to be dry. Ah, good. So whilst there are no guarantees, we could potentially be going into our second drying month. Or actually, after, I think we both had quite a dry January this year, it might even be our third drying month. We'll have to wait and see. But it looks like evapotranspiration is likely to be exceeding uh, rainfall. And those agronomic odds 
are starting to lean in our favour now, Glenn. Yeah, we're a long, long way still from moisture-based plant stresses, Henry. But the switch from saturation to soil moisture deficits could definitely be changing through this period. Could be earlier, could be later, but we are in that time frame, Henry. Yeah, and March is the time when we when we sort of generally encourage course managers to start getting on with their wetting agent programmes, isn't it? Especially on those traditionally dry sites or dry parts of the country, you know, to prepare the soil against those sort of drying conditions that are most likely to be on the horizon. It really is, Henry, because for most parts of the country, when you look at this evapotranspiration rate versus rainfall, it is the time when we are drying down. And and the suggestion to put wetting agents out is generally met with a look of mistrust. After all, most people think they've only just started to dry out, so it never feels quite right, but it's good advice. Yeah, it can sneak up on you, can't it? Um, mm. So let's expand on that later on, Glenn. It's important that we, that we you know prevent any problems from kind of sneaking up on us isn't it good stuff look forward to that very good okay but you know we are being optimistic aren't we but we're (laughs) certainly not out of the woods yet are we when it comes to snow even no it is very very possible to still see snow in march henry in fact the odds are pretty much exactly the same as they are in december yeah that's interesting and so it's probably worth having a listen back to january's podcast uh, for our thoughts on that subject if uh, if the if the forecast is starting to show some snow now i assume that if snow is still in the game the temperatures aren't rocketing away in march what are they looking like okay so january and february we spoke about how many days we get above 10 degrees so it's how many days in the month will lift above that 10 degree figure Uh, It's a really interesting metric to start understanding the temperature movement throughout this early spring, late winter period. Now, for us down south, we move from an average of seven days a month in January above 10 degrees to 11 days a month in February. And then on average, we rock it up to 21 days above 10 degrees in March. So there is a big movement for us in that month on average. Now, for you in Ilkley, you shift from two days a month in January to six days a month above 10 in February and then jump up to 11 days above 10 degrees in March. Very good. So even though up north we are a little behind you, that's a good step forward, isn't it, for both of us, sort of temperature-wise in March? Yes, it is. But as always, Henry, the averages do hide a story. There is quite a bit of variability in there. In Ilkley, you see some years delivering around four days above 10 degrees. That's been your coldest years. Some years you've seen as many as 22 days above 10 degrees. And so quite a wide range there. And for us down in Winchester, we've seen as low as five days above 10 degrees. But some years we've seen 28 days in the month above 10 degrees. Okay, so quite a lot of variability there in temperatures. All right, so what are the the averages looking like for March? Okay, well, your average daytime temperature in Ilkley is 5.2, and our average on the south coast is 6.9. So still cold on average, uh, but we do start to see the 18s, 19s and 20s sneaking in in March. So there can be a few of those about. So variability is the name of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, What about those overnight temperatures? Are they the governing factor? Are they still holding things back? Yeah, well, they are interesting. They have hardly budged since last month, Henry. For you in Ilkley, your overnight March average 
is still 1.6 degrees and Winchester's overnight average is 2.2 degrees. So the overnight temperatures seemingly not moving. Now that is interesting, isn't it? So I suppose if we were getting hopeful, then even those temperature averages should serve to calm things down a bit. But those those nighttime temperatures holding still is, you know, is a real sort of governor on things, isn't it? You know, March mm. is still a cold month. Is and it, I'm, I'm interested now. So is there the same level of variability in overnight temperatures or are they just stubbornly staying where they are? Well, of course, there's always variability in the game, but there is not as much with these overnight temperatures. But it's there. In, in many ways, March's cold days are every bit as cold as February's. And in fact, in most years, we do see temperatures down as low as minus three in the month of March. But our best case scenario through March is probably seven, eight, maybe even nine a push overnight. But, I mean, I suppose that that sort of is a little bit hopeful because we're sort of, mm. we are on the verge of growth at, at times during this period, aren't we? Yeah, it, it is a similar month to February in many ways. If you look at the averages, we're, we're cold overnight with daytime temperatures rising and lifting. But the variability gets much wider again through March. We start to see some real waves of growing weather that, that come our way. They just kind of wave in and gently wave out again, which we used to refer to as false springs, didn't we, Henry? Yes, we did. And it's such an interesting subject. And um, I think we're gonna, we are going to pick up on that a little bit later on, aren't we? Mm. But that is good because that's, that's the name of the game for March, isn't it? Those waves of weather potentially providing opportunities for us. So we've moved moved on from February's occasional daytime pleasantness into maybe longer waves of pleasantness in March. And I guess, Glenn, you're going to tell me, aren't you, that they keep rolling in until June when things finally settle down and um, become more consistent. Does this reflect itself in the amount of sub two degree hours, by the way, you know, those stopping hours? Or have we reached the point in the year when they aren't relevant anymore? Well, they are certainly relevant. Uh, You're now 158 sub two degree stopping hours on average, Henry. And down on the south coast, we are at 100 sub two degree stopping hours on average. So we've both dropped a little on average from February. Uh, But we've certainly got more sub two degree hours in March than we ever get in November. And in fact, it is very, very close to December's number. And what we do see in March, there is far less variability in those sub two degree hours than we do in December. We can get some really, really cold ones too. And if we go back to that 2013 year that I mentioned earlier, you saw 425 sub two degree hours, Henry, which is well over half the month being below two degrees. That that same 2013 year down south, we saw 234 sub two degree hours. So March is very cold on occasions. Now, those two years are outliers and they are not the normal situation, but they are pretty much close In fact, I think they are the coldest month that we've got in that 13, 14 year data set I've got. And and that coldest month fell in March. Mm, Yeah, it is interesting. You know, we we were talking about those sub two degree hours as a sort of measure of disease pressure, really, or sort of, you know, the higher the sub two degree hours, the, the kind of less risk of microdochium patch disease developing and that kind of like rings true for me because I don't think that the sort of disease pressure generally is 
that high in March, you know, and and so with those sort of stopping hours still sort of holding up during this time, I suppose overnight especially, then that sort of seems to bear that out, doesn't it? Um, it this must reflect itself in soil temperatures because it is still potentially cold and sort of maybe, if those averages are correct, sort of three to five hours a day below two degrees C. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and soil temperature-wise, we can track it. It's all modelled, which has its challenges because in sports turf management we're managing so many different soil types that aren't aren't um, found in the natural environment so often so it is a little bit tricky but if we look at those averages henry february is generally the coldest point of the year for the soils uh, and then march is when on average we begin to move on and we begin to move up uh, we go into march on average between kind of four to six degrees and we see an upward trend throughout the month and we come out of it somewhere with soil temperatures sneaking up to around nine maybe ten on occasions mm, that is important isn't it so we go into march with warming soils and hopefully that upward trend then continues and again fingers crossed by the end of the month given a fair run, we can see some really decent soil temperatures and a lift towards something that would be more suited to the development of some turf growth. Indeed, those opportunities are definitely there, but what we lack is consistency. Okay, now the one thing I have noticed, even at the time of recording, is that day lengths are starting to stretch out, aren't they? Which is most welcome, and and of course that will continue through March, won't it? Yeah, it's refreshing and good for the soul. Mm. Um, We do start March at the beginning around 11 and a half hours of daylight, and by the time we get to the end of March, we're generally at about 13 hours of daylight. So it's a month where we could, and we should, feel like we're approaching better times. Okay, so whilst we still can have some very cold temperatures, almost January-like on occasion, the day length is what's different. The day length continues to march forward regardless. Yeah, and I think that's the bit that really marks the road out of winter, doesn't it? Oh, you know, and thank the Lord for that. Um, (laughs) Okay, so very good. Anyway, so in summary, for us up in Ilkley, hopefully we're on a more positive positive journey now with soil moisture drying out hopefully um, with the odds being stacked in favour of a drier period and with evapotranspiration continuing to lift you know that drying out might prompt us to start thinking about applying some surfactants especially on dry sites in dry parts of the country temperatures also are generally moving hopefully in a in a positive direction with those waves of growth starting to come and go as those soil temperatures start to lift the march variability i think i mean that's a big key there really isn't it It does make it a bit of a lottery and it is tough to know what's coming up but the general daytime sort of daylight picture is upwards but we still need to be aware of those cold breaks and so expect a choppy ride really for the next few weeks so while things might be looking up in Ilkley and there might be some opportunities for us to sort of uh, make progress and for the course to start waking up we definitely need to keep our fingers crossed yeah that's right and the south coast looks like a very similar pattern those warm days could be a couple of degrees warmer than yours and the cold waves have the potential to be exactly the same or or even at times slightly colder giving us a bit of a choppier ride through this period but when the opportunities do come they're probably more conducive to a bit of growth so 
Can we call it the start of spring yet? Maybe, Henry. Certainly by the end of the month, we have a good chance of some spring-like conditions. Yeah, good. So it's positive, isn't it? It really is. But at this point, though, Henry, whilst you're metaphorically skipping through the daffodils... I feel I should put a bit of a dampener on your optimism and just remind you how brutal and cold last April and May were. We are certainly not out of the woods yet. No, we're never out of the woods, Glenn. Well, Glenn, with waves of positive weather possibly rolling our way, um, surely... The golfers will begin to smile, Glenn, and look forward to the upcoming season. Is that the case? Do they start hitting the driving range in earnest whilst waiting patiently for the course to transition out of its winter coat? Or do they, and I fear this may be the case, just uh, feel the first bit of heat on their back and expect all that wear and tear from the winter play to simply disappear? Well, we're on that journey now, aren't we, Henry? That journey from our first dry week of the year where we can see some nice firm surfaces and some good playing surfaces. Well, that actually started quite early, didn't it, this year? Like mid-January was, um, well, well, the end of December, actually. But, but yeah, it, we had quite a dry January up here. I think you did too. And I think, it, I think it was conducive to some good playing surfaces. Yeah, that's right. The feedback to, from my local colleagues and friends was that um, the golf courses were getting worn out because of how much golf was getting played on them but we go through that journey don't we from that first kind of occasion of nice firm surfaces and then we run into the next phase which is a bit of growth which is generally good news because it gives us a bit of definition Um, and I've already seen that as well this year on my Twitter feed during those drier breaks in February and then of course we roll on to the next phase of the journey through to that intermittent growth phase which which starts to make it tricky to present great surfaces yeah that sort of uh, stop start weather that that is characteristic of march yeah that's right and by the time we get through into march we start seeing more and more of that stop start stop start and that really does start to become challenging because as we move through into this next bit the pinnacle of this will challenge with things stopping and starting and will it won't it what comes right around the corner it's the masters yeah the dreaded augusta syndrome glenn yeah this year that falls on the 4th of april now march to me feels like the journey between a couple of those steps henry it's the part of the journey where if it's cold and dry we can have some great surfaces satisfied customers and grand expectations for what lies ahead yeah but there can still be some um, like frost challenges um, and lack of recovery in the game at this time yes there can but when that temperature starts to pick up then we move into the next phase into that beginning of bumpy and challenging surfaces those surfaces that just seem to always need more maintenance inputs and and the surface never felt to me like it matched the amount of effort we put in at times i even felt like they were going backwards now all of this is happening at exactly the same time as the golfer feeling like things should be getting better and it it kind of their patience begins to run out with it after a while it feels like cold and dry conditions would be better than mild and wet i think so henry 
I, I think the real dream is just a quick switch. It's inevitable we're going to be cold and it's inevitable growth is going to come. But what we'd like is cold and then instantly over to warm and for it to stay there, which is what you tend to see in kind of Northern America and a lot of the European countries that I'm now dealing with. They go from cold, very short transition into consistently warm. And in many ways, that's a much nicer situation to deal with than the one that we do in the UK. Yeah, it is tough, isn't it? Um, um, we'll definitely talk about this kind of just how long the transition phase is a little later on. OK, so what about the rest of the course, you know, away from the putting surfaces? Well, those dry breaks and low growth hopefully mean that those who are lucky enough to come through... Uh, and have some decent fairway brushes in their in their mach- with their machines and in their yards can get them out, which will start to lead a bit of defin to a bit of definition around the course. Hopefully, we get enough dry breaks in there to knock those worm casts around and get some really decent cuts in and recover from that. Um, the areas that haven't been too badly impacted over the winter by either wear, worm casts, animal damage, disease all can take shape pretty quickly in the month of March. But it's those areas that did get hit over the winter that now become the focus of attention. If we've got areas that are heavily trafficked or have been really impacted by worm casts, uh, badger damage or bird pecking, disease that might have got away quicker than we wanted to, leather jacket damage, all of those kind of things... They are the real challenge. And the weather is now starting to break. Days are getting longer. Golfers are getting keener. So this is now the beginning of it, Henry. And it probably all starts with a very perfectly normal and reasonable question that starts with the phrase, when will? Or how long until? Sounds like there's a bit of menace in there, Glenn. Well, not to start with, Henry. In fact, it's always very polite to start with. You know, it's when will those worn out areas recover? How long until those disease scars on the greens disappear? When will the GUR marking around the badger damage on the third hole go? All those kind of things. Perfectly reasonable. Yeah, actually, yeah, when you when you put it like that, perfectly reasonable questions, of, of course. Although I do suspect that the golfers will soon forget about their own role in the development of all those problems yes uh, of course but i do think it all starts with a very good understanding of the underlying causes but patience is short and golfers memories are even shorter and and the answer to all of the questions that they asked is pretty simple henry it will disappear when we've had a couple of weeks of good and consistent growth And that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for Mother Nature to release that handbrake. Yeah, but that could be a long, long way away yet, can't it? Yeah, it is. And that is the big question on all turf managers' minds in this period. Life in March is much, much easier if you've come through the winter period clean. Indeed, Glenn. So, Henry, what are the risks that may loom large in March? Well, the risks, Glenn, I think, like last month, are very much in the hands of the weather. But we have also have that increasing level of golfer expectation also in the mix. Yes, indeed. I can feel the impatience all around me. Yeah. Well, and as you've just said, Glenn, the, the weather can be a bit of a lottery in March. Uh, But generally, I suppose we're hoping for uh, cold and dry with occasional spells of pleasantness. Mm, A bit like you, Henry. 
Yeah, thanks, Glenn. Um, <laughs> but it could be the exact opposite, you know, as we've seen in recent years, either mild and wet Glenn or even a, a right stinker or a beast of bitterness Glenn. Sounds like me, Henry. Yes, it does. And, <laughs> um, you know, and all of those different eventualities, you know, that lottery it brings can sort of bring forward a lot of different challenges. Yes, and uh, we talked about frost and snow in January's podcast, so we don't need to go back over that one, but they are there, aren't they? Yeah, I think a successful march really, as you just mentioned, actually, it sort of mainly hinges on the condition of the turf going into it and then the onset of growth or the very first glimpses of it at least starting to generate recovery and from then on it's all about being ready to take any opportunities that might come along um so early spring nutrition is is certainly in the game at this time sulfate of ammonia being my preferred choice as the source of nitrogen granular form uh, but it might even be in soluble form depending on the ground conditions yeah we spoke last month about the challenging fertilizer situation at the moment henry have you got any updates on that for us well glenn it is still extremely challenging with the availability of iron sulfate being the big issue and with iron sulfate being a staple of, you know, pretty much every spring fertiliser. At the time of recording, this was still a major concern and the advice given last month to consider alternative approaches to early spring nutrition is um, now even more relevant, I would say. It might even be that you'll be applying your nutrition and your iron separately this year okay so things are tough at the moment i'm aware of that because we've been talking about it off air Mm. but but in terms of you know in reality there are some pretty straightforward workarounds aren't there well hopefully you know the problem is i think that we're sort of creatures of habits or we're all control freaks so we want to kind of do what we want but this year it might be that we need to be a bit more flexible but undoubtedly the use of iron is really important in the spring you know to discourage moss development and so you know it's not something that we should do without so if it is needed we need to apply in whatever form you know iron also contributes to our spring microdochium patch disease sort of ITM plans. But as we mentioned earlier, I think the risk is lower at this time than in autumn. So yeah, iron is important. And a lot of people will be very concerned about availability on cold start, Henry, going into this period. How's that looking? Yeah, yeah, it's cold start time. Uh, Well, we won't be producing an iron-free version, and that's because we feel that the iron is such a key component of the product. Um, And the same goes for the invigorators, actually. Mm, So we've got some serious stuff on the horizon then, Henry. Yes, we do in terms of supply. Um, But... You know, there will be alternatives available. You know, the Sierra Form GTK step, the 6027, will still be good to go. And we're trying to make other sort of workarounds available to satisfy both those who need a, a strong start, you know, the cold start boost, or um, a sort of steady away kind of fertilizer like the invigorators. Mm, yeah. Now now we start rolling into this subject of how we get things moving, Henry, I get a little confused or I can see how some people get confused because on one hand, 
you and I are talking about wanting cold weather to reduce and slow growth and make things a bit easier. But but on the other hand, we start talking about wanting to really accelerate growth through this period. It's a bit of a, a, a dichotomy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. I know what you mean. We want we want to have our cake and to eat <laughs> it. But I think we you sort of mentioned it earlier. Actually, I think it's 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 once we sort of get the chance to boost some growth, I think we then go with it. Uh, it'd be really nice if it was a, a straightforward and quick transition from, you know, no growth to consistent growth, but we don't have that. And so I think what we sort of need to do, especially with the, when we're sort of thinking about preparing our services, we just need to sort of see how it goes then jump on when conditions are sort of more conducive but you know if growth does start we do start running into those problems of surface unevenness especially if there's you've got a mixed ward in your greens uh, which many people do that patchy blend of bent and annual meadow grass with the bent bent rake waking up before the meadow grass and it can present real problems can't it how did you cope with that differential early season growth glenn it's at this time, it's really difficult to keep the cutting height up, isn't it, in the face of it? Yes, it's a real challenge. And it was a real challenge for me um, at one of the courses I managed. That, and it, honestly, it usually resulted in me lowering the cutting heights earlier than I wanted to. Um, I had various experiences of this on different courses. And, and like I said, the, the last one I managed was a real tricky situation. I think I always, in the end, erred on the side of good putting surfaces rather than plant health. And I kind of reached for the reached to adjust those cylinders probably quicker than I should have done. And it's easy to look back and say that I should have done something else. But I think I generally steered towards happier customers and more content customers. And I thought I'll deal with the plant health issues ourselves it's a real challenge what's your take on it henry well certainly uneven greens are a massive challenge with the masters on the horizon and so i think with my agronomist hat on i think i just wanted to find the best way of generating a growth response across the board which i think is what cold start generally does or and invigorator with the with the sulfate of ammonia being good for uh utilization by both uh, annual metagrass and the brown top bents. Actually, in that 2013 trial that I described last month, I, I, I was hoping that an early application of Primo Max might help to sort of even out that differential growth. But um, I think in that trial, uh, in that year, it was it was just too early for the Primo to contribute. But I do think. You know the key remains is is with with all this is 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 with the establishment of growth because once you have it up and running, recovery from traffic and 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 the other damage starts and and you can sort of get on with the process of top dressing, brushing, rolling, etc., and you know generating that recovery. Yeah, and we've already established through this month of March we do need to be patient. But the breaks will come, so we need to be ready as well. Yeah, we do. And, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, won't we? And another thing that we might see at this time of year, Glenn, is that purpling of the leaf that sometimes happens during cold snaps of weather at this time. Now, in my agronomy days, this used to be ascribed as being possibly a result of a lack of phosphorus uptake in those colder conditions. But I think now we, we think of it more of a pigmentation 
response rather than a deficiency. What do you think, Glenn? Did you ever see it? Yeah, yeah, we got it every now and then, now and again, and I still see it when I'm going to visit people in the spring. Uh, it it tends to affect sand greens more than it does soils, and I'm never quite sure if that's because of different grass species or slightly different biotypes you know, in that sward that's evolved slightly differently because of the construction, or if it's the slightly quicker fluctuations in the soil temperatures that sand-based constructions might bring. It generally occurs when we see cold and bright days, um, and it's definitely a pigment response. That purpling we see is definitely a pigment response to some kind of stress. If you look on the underside of that leaf, you'll see that the underside remains green and it is the plant protecting itself. As what it's done is it's produced more sugars in the kind of high photosynthesis type light that it's getting and it's got more sugars than it can use. So it's not an issue. It tends to grow out. So it's not something to be worried about. And it is that kind of pigment defense technology that the plant is using that we've tried to replicate with Rider, which would have some advantages during this period of the year to help protect the plant from that high light levels. But it's not an absolute you know, game changer. It's an agronomic anomaly rather than being anything too significant, isn't it? Would the application of a pigment like Rider help if the discoloration was just too ugly? It can certainly help to mask it and it is mimicking the plant's response to that high light. So it would maybe put it in a slightly healthier or stronger position to cope with the strong light. So it is worth trying, but for me, it's it's not essential. And I'd probably go for it if it's causing you stress, if you're worrying about those purple patches or if your customer is worrying about it, rather than being concerned about your turf. So it's worth a go to mask it maybe, but it's it's more to kind of help you through that membership period because it's not affecting putting surfaces or plant health. But please, whatever you do, don't apply fungicides to this. This is not a disease, so applying fungicides is not going to get to grips or have any benefit whatsoever on it. Okay, so moving on from kind of purple patches in greens, Henry, have we got any other risks on the horizon that we need to talk about? Well, we already mentioned not missing the opportunity to have our surfactants in place because there is a risk of uh, it turning dry in March and, and then that continuing, that dry weather continuing through April and May. Yes, indeed, especially in those dry areas of the country and on courses with sandy soils or really exposed windy sites. Yeah, so the Convention for Wetting Agent programmes in such situations has become to get on early, isn't it? Our team generally start scheduling TriSmart or Quilibra applications starting in March because once the soil does become dry and stress starts to enter the game, it can really be really difficult to turn things around. You know, if we do run into a more prolonged spell of dry weather and if irrigation is an issue. Yeah, that's right. And when we're thinking about fairways and Quilibra programmes, we always recommend starting a bit higher, maybe a 20 litre and a hectare application for that first one. And then we can reduce that rate later on in the programme, depending on your situation. Some go at 10, some go at 15, depending on how challenging it is. But let's talk about wetting agents later on in the podcast, Henry. Okay, so I suppose our biggest fear at this time is that March would turn sort of mild and wet for all the wear and tear and more particularly worm casts that it might generate. I think if that is the case, 
then we just need to stay on our guard, really, don't we, and continue to manage the traffic with hoops, etc., to just prevent important areas from, from churning up. I think it's just important that, we're, that in the face of that kind of adversity that we try and stand our ground. But, you know, with the amount of play that we get these days, a cold and dry march can result in a busy golf course that might also result in a huge amount of damage as well so this is a difficult time yes it is and i think you've hit the nail on the head henry holding firm with our hoops or traffic management those measures is really going to help us get through because we do go in and out of growth through this period and it is not easy with the golfing juices starting to play you know really starting to flow and those golfers getting out there more and more and more and inevitably we're having to get more mowers out and it will depend on your site as to how much turf growth you're getting how often you're running them out and trying to keep the team motivated to keep those ropes straight and in place but it's it's really of value through this period until we get into consistent growth now one of the things that can cause us problems is if it gets so wet and that's generally associated with mild periods and we do have to get those mowers out more than we want and that can start making things look really messy right at the beginning of the season which is heartbreaking at times okay so is there any scope for the use of primo max across the wider course in march glenn well yeah depending on conditions if it's mild and growth is kicking on um, and you don't want to be churning up a wet course with mowers, then, then it could be something you consider, particularly in those trouble spots, those really difficult areas that all golf courses will have. Um, if it was me and the conditions were in that kind of zone, I think I'd be getting out there just to take the mower pressure off and maybe help me keep those ropes out a little bit longer. Um, if we think about Primo on greens, um, from a longevity point of view, you should be getting three to four weeks out of it at this time of year if the weather is normal. So you, you should get pretty good value out of it in those situations. But don't forget, if we do move into those mild periods, particularly the ones we see down south in, in greens programs, we could already by the end of the month be down to a 21-day interval. Um, so it's a really useful product that could get you out of a hole, could mean you can leave some ropes out in certain areas a bit longer or keep mowers off some difficult areas. Um, so definitely a place for it in wider turf management. Uh, I think that the opportunities to use it in greens programs really kick on in April. And I think we should talk about that one next month, Henry. Yeah, very good, Glenn. Uh, that really is a sign of progress, isn't it? If we're starting to mm. think about our plant growth regulator programs. Okay, look, Glenn, I'm sorry to say this, <laughs> but we can't talk about the risks in March without mentioning leather jacket and chafer grub damage, can we? Are we entering, you know, the high risk period now for, for damage with these grubs, Glenn? Yes, we are, Henry. This is it. March is the uh, the difficult month. The, the, it's the combination of feeding grubs, you know, and that's really variable depending on soil temperatures that get thrown at us in the month. Um, or secondary pests, birds and badgers feeding on grubs. And again, that's variable because their food source, other insects and things like that is dependent on temperatures. You combine that with slow growth and lack of recovery, um, which again, we can get in March. And if you combine all those things, we can start seeing some widespread devastation if the weather doesn't go in our direction or in our favour. This has the potential to be a really difficult time, and it was last year. 
But we're not completely helpless against this. There is a number of things we can try and do and we've learned some lessons and we can try and get better. Um, so I think we should make a section and just have a chat about that one later on, Henry. Don't forget to keep your phone switched on, obviously. So the risks at this time, uh, I think, is mainly that we would um, experience weather conditions that would result in a, an increased level of course deterioration. And that can take many forms, can't it? Because... Although we want to focus on recovery, it might be slow to emerge in March or sporadic at, ba- at best. I think the one thing that's sort of become clear really is that March is, is almost like a weird mix of winter and spring the start of spring, all jumbled up. So mild and damp conditions could lead to an increased level of pest and disease activity and a greater level of wear and tear. But, you know, on the other side of the coin, excessively cold or snowy conditions could lead to sort of different forms of deterioration with absolutely no recovery occurring. Ideally, we just need that cold and dry March, Glenn, with hints of pleasantness. But that is certainly not guaranteed, is it? And so we, we always need to keep our weather eye on that horizon at all times. Yes, this is the true onset of spring, isn't it? For, for, for us in the UK... Uh, that's a stop-start affair, unfortunately, rather than the quick transition we see in some other areas of the globe. Um, It's the time that all that hard work during the winter will really pay off. If you've managed to protect the course up until March, if you've kept that microdochium at bay on your greens, if you've managed traffic well, if you've kept animal damage at an absolute minimum, then March is a month for grabbing those opportunities that are going to come our way to improve and impress the customer. If things haven't gone your way over winter, though, March is a month of just praying the weather breaks in your favour and communicating with your customer the realities of the situation. Yeah, never an easy task, Glenn. Okay, thanks, Henry. Uh, Now I'm just about ready for a cuppa. Uh, But when we come back, let's make some time to talk about leather jackets and chafers, full springs and riding those pleasant weather waves, surfactants, And we're going to chat cutting heights with my good friend, Tom Stidder. Sounds good to me, Glenn. Get the kettle on. Welcome back to part two of the March on the Horizon. In the first half, we discussed the weather that we might expect in March, hopefully warming up consistently. Um, The risks being very much in the hands of the weather and also those golfer expectations which are most definitely on the rise. But we think it might be a time of emerging opportunities. Anyway, so we've had a break and made ourselves a cuppa before embarking on part two when we will be having a very special guest, Glenn. That's right. We've got Tom Stidder from TCS Turf Care who is joining us with some thoughts on mower heights just to get us thinking about our mower setup before we enter into the season. You're very good. But before then, it's tea time. So what have you gone for this month, Glenn? Well, Henry, since the new year, I've made a a firm switch towards coffee. Uh, It was my New Year's resolution. For to drink more coffee? Yeah, that's right. I thought if I was going to make a promise to myself, it should be at least one that I can see through to the end of the year. Uh, Anyway, Henry, in my mug today, I've got Nescafe Azira. 
Uh, well done, Glenn. Any good? Well, according to the label, Henry, it is rich and smooth. But whilst reading the label, I was very pleased to find out that my beans have been grown respectfully. Ooh, respectfully. You know that is so important in a coffee. I wonder what Tom would drink. Well, Henry, you know I am the one to ask the big questions. Ah, uh, so you asked him? I sure did. You a tea or a coffee man, Tom? Both, actually. I like coffee first thing in the morning. I like tea for the rest of the day. Okay, got a favourite brand? Machinery-wise. No, tea. Uh, Anything from Yorkshire, probably. Anything from Yorkshire. Good man, Tom. I like him already, Glenn. Uh, Well, what about you, Henry? What have you filled your ICL mug with this month? Well, Glenn, before we started all this, I was as straight as a die when it came to my tea. Um, But now I'm just all over the shop. I've got herbals and exotics um, from around the world, all now filling up my desk drawer at work. I've changed, Glenn. Okay, with all of this exotic stuff going on, Henry, what are you on this month? Well, to keep the caffeine levels in check, Glenn, unlike you, I have moved over to drinking peppermint tea in the afternoons. Oh, Henry, that sounds disgusting. What's it like? Well, you get used to it, Glenn. I would say it's a bit like baldness. After a time, you end up liking it. Is that a good thing? I think so, Glenn. Okay, Glenn. We said earlier that we'd have a little chat about false springs or those short periods of pleasantness that each year serve to raise all our hopes that spring has arrived only to be dashed by a return to winter. And it gets us every time, doesn't it? So, Glenn, I get the feeling that you've dug a little deeper into this phenomenon. That's right. I've had a little look at the weather conditions over the last three years through this spring period that we're talking about now. Mm. And I think I was just trying to get my head round exactly what is going on. Well, false hope mainly, Glenn, I would say. Oh No, it's not, Henry. Uh, I don't think it is anyway. But what I want to understand is really what is happening in order to grasp these opportunities that come our way. Very good. Well, let's crack on then. Okay, so what I was trying to look for was some kind of metric, something to help people gauge what to expect during this spring period. And when we're trying to understand how often and when these false springs will come. Hmm. And these false springs are periods of weather that are conducive to growth, but then they just disappear. They're like weather waves that may be heading our way. And I was trying to gauge how many of these waves do we get, when do they start, and when do we move into consistent temperatures when Mother Nature truly releases that handbrake. So what did you find? Okay, so what I've done is I've labelled it up as phase one. Phase one is the onset of some sort of growth, when we could expect to see something, and I'm looking for the first period of that of the year, And I've kind of marked that by when we see the first rolling seven-day average temperature of five degrees. Okay, so phase one is when growth sort of starts. Yep, that's right. And phase two is when we consistently reach a rolling seven-day average of 10 degrees. Now, to my mind, when we're consistently seeing an average of over 10 degrees during the day, that's when the temperatures are conducive for consistent growth. Now, once we've got those two dates, what I wanted to know is between growth starting, possibly phase one, and phase two, when it was consistently with us, 
how many waves of opportunity do we get between those two dates? OK, fine, and sounds reasonable to me. So let's start with me up here in Ilkley. When does phase one, the onset of growth opportunities, tend to start? Well, let's work backwards, Henry, as 2021 should be the most recent in your mind. And in 2021, phase one started on the 15th of February. But consistent growth, phase two, didn't reach you until the 27th of May. So that was 101 days, Henry. Yeah, uh, but last year was particularly brutal. How did that compare to 2020 then? Well, in 2020, phase one commenced on the 8th of March, so a bit later, and it went on until the 17th of May because that was when we went into phase two, and that was a 70-day period. That was a later start uh, than last year, but 10 days earlier uh, when reaching more consistent growing conditions. That's right. And if we go back to 2019, phase one started on the 8th of February and it went on until the 12th of May. So 2019, you had a 93-day period. So this transition period for us in Ilkley over the last three years has been between two and a half and three and a half months which is quite a big difference. Yeah, let, let's call it a quarter of the year, Henry, where growth mm. is starting, it's stopping, it doesn't really know where it is. I think it's called spring, Glen. So how does this work for you down south? I'm assuming you come out of this into more consistent growth quicker than us. Well, let's have a look. 2021, we went into phase one on the 25th of January and we came out on the 26th of May. So that was 121 days. OK, so last year, which again was a really tough one for you as well, you stepped into phase one sooner, but came out really interestingly and into phase two at the same time as me. That's correct. And in 2020, we went into phase one on the 20th of January and didn't go into phase two until the 17th of May. So 118 days. If we look to 2019, we entered phase one on the 1st of February and we came out on the 15th of May. So that was 105 days. So you're in that transition period for even longer than me. You go into it sooner, but achieve those consistent phase two temperatures at pretty much the same time as we do up north. You're pretty consistently at four months in that transition period because you just start a little earlier than we do. Yeah, that's right. And in the early period, we have waves of growth, Henry, little peaks and troughs where we dip in and out of growth, or, or at least temperatures conducive to growth. Uh, and those waves of growth seem to be the same the further south you go, just maybe a degree warmer on the warm days and the cool days Probably similar, but even potential, depending on the location, to be maybe a degree lower. OK, very good. So how many of those phase one waves do we tend to see each spring on average, Glenn? Well, let's go back through them. In 2021, you saw five and I saw five. So that was five periods where we dipped into decent growth and then we dropped back out again. In 2020, you saw three and I saw six. And in 2019, you saw four, and we down south saw a flat year with only one peak and a pretty stable line throughout. But looking at the data I've looked at, that doesn't seem to be the normal 
situation. Yeah, you know, this does ring true to me, Glenn, because I remember recently doing my classic... 2016 spring fertilizer trial presentation and during this presentation I, I kind of recount all the weather conditions through the trial period it's very very interesting <laughs> I reckon that you know in that year there are at least three probably more occasions when I go from saying spring has arrived to the next slide sort of saying and then winter returned. It's, it's such a frustrating time, Glenn, isn't it? I, I think in that trial or that year, the cruelest return to winter was right at the end of May, if I remember. It, it can just beat you down, can't it? So look, looking at the data, Glenn, how long do these waves tend to last for? Well, they're variable and they're wavy, Henry. And, and the only way to pick these periods out in a kind of graph is to look at the figures on a rolling average. Um, and that really helps pick out the waves and kind of helps interpret how the turf will be interpreting things. But it does blur the picture a little. But they tend to roll in anything from a few days to a couple of weeks and they get stronger and longer in general, the closer you get towards the end of May. Very, very good, Glenn. Okay, so to take a breath, what we call the emergence of spring is actually a period of time between when the temperature becomes conducive to growth starting intermittently, or phase one, as you call it, through to when conditions are more consistently conducive to, to growth, or phase two. Uh, generally, that transition can last last between 70 and 100 days for us in Ilkley and from 100 to 120 days for you in Winchester, which is mind-blowing, isn't it? As that's about a third of the year. And during that period, we will see waves of growth opportunity come in and then you know recede again some years it's clear can be choppier than others or have bigger waves than others depending on what the weather throws at us or they can come along as one long wave over that period but uh, it seems to be more likely that we'll we'll see maybe five or or six smaller waves present themselves yeah, some years we'll see peaks that are maybe slightly higher and troughs that will be slightly lower, but the growth waves seem to be a consistent countrywide phenomenon. Now, every one of these waves presents an opportunity, though, doesn't it? Um, it's an opportunity for us to get a bit of growth, to move into some recovery and maybe some preparation for the season ahead. Yeah, I think it's important because we just need to get our heads round using the upturns and not being frustrated or scared off or sort of surprised even by the inevitable downturns. Yeah, that's right. And depending on how your autumn winter went, these are the opportunities to improve the conditioning of your surfaces or their opportunities to recover from some of the damage you could have sustained. And we've already mentioned that damage could be wear traffic, could be insect damage, could be disease damage or it could just be weak plants um you know all the things we spoke about earlier but if i go back to my formative greenkeeping years henry when i was a younger lad and very influenced and if i think about what i learned or what i had instilled in me i think i was told and i believe that we should sit these waves out 
and we should just wait until we get consistent growth arriving, which we've seen is generally best case scenario middle of May, but more likely beginning of June. Uh, and we had to wait for those until we pushed the golf course forward. And, and that was the mindset. We simply had to wait. And I think I always wrestled with this as a course manager. I think whenever I grabbed one of these waves, I just felt a little bit naughty. You know, I always think I felt I was going to get caught out or something was going to go wrong. And I think that just held me back. And I don't think I ever fully embraced them. Beware the false spring was the old adage, wasn't it? Another one of those received wisdoms that get passed down from generation to generation. I think that mindset is certainly changing or has changed, isn't it? Many people now do see these waves as opportunities, like you say. Um, but there's still an element of turf managers out there that subscribe to the sit it out until consistent growth arrives philosophy. And I suspect I was one of them, Henry. Or I was certainly caught in a trap between the two. I wasn't a firm committer to making the most of these waves. Now, I wonder what's led to that transition over to grabbing these opportunities. There's usually a driving factor behind it, isn't there? Well, we talked about it last time, didn't we, Glenn? Um, the desire to get renovation work done early and get the greens as ready as soon as possible in order to sort of raise their overall level of performance. And the whole cold start thing that has helped it along in recent years. It's just about progress, I think, Glenn, and a desire to, to take those opportunities to get the course up to scratch as soon as possible. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of clubs are in competition for members these days. And of course, we've got those nomadic green fee paying golfers out there who are all looking around to see where their money is best spent to get the best value. Yep. And as you've already pointed out, Glenn, 100 to 120 days of pretty average conditioning whilst waiting for growth is not the best way to attract golfers is it nor is it necessary if you know what you're doing so in recent years green keepers and course managers have learned to take opportunities and i guess they've learned to manipulate these waves with the appropriate fertilizers and you know with the with the better machinery that's available to us um, all of that has helped to prepare and improve greens earlier and earlier in the spring when it just used to be a time of hanging back. Yeah, utilising those spring waves has become a key tool for many turf managers these days. Yeah, when you look back at these spring periods, they are undoubtedly difficult to manage and the expectations through these periods really are high. Um, and when you look back at the historic weather conditions through this period, it goes on a lot longer than anyone wants to remember as well. Yeah, I think we now use the waves to get things done, but the greens don't tend to come together uh, completely until that period of consistent growth is established towards the end of May. That's right. But, but if we have utilised those waves, Henry, the surfaces can be better through the early spring and they can give us less work to do when that consistent growth does eventually arrive. Uh, I do think as an industry, we have a habit of calling all springs a difficult spring, which is absolutely factual and correct. But they're all very similar. Phase one always seems to be starting earlier and earlier. So we kind of go into growth a little bit earlier every year. This year is another great example of that. And phase two never comes as early as we hope for. And we have to navigate our way through these stop starts each and every spring. And it's generally a longer period of time than I think any of us give credit. It's about a quarter of the year. But if we do get the breaks, um, we just got to keep using them to nudge those playing surfaces forward. 
So, Henry, can you help us out here and summarise what fertiliser technologies we could be leaning on during these breaks that we get in the spring? Yes, absolutely. As we mentioned earlier, uh, for applications made in March that are designed to enhance and expand those early waves, you know, where soil temperatures start to sort of reach between 6 and 10 degrees C, we would... I think, lean on sulfate of ammonia as the primary nitrogen source for quick utilisation at these temperatures. I have carried out early spring trials looking at other nitrogen sources at this time, and you will certainly get responses from urea and nitrate nitrogen, but I don't think that they are as effective pound for pound. Yeah, I think I used to rely on potassium nitrate at this time, and that did an okay job for me. So, for an early steady away response, we tend to recommend the invigorator, low nitrogen type products. But for a stronger start, we generally recommend the weightier, higher nitrogen cold start types. But there are a number of other options that might be more appropriate in different situation and this year as a result of the supply issue issues we we are having to focus on low iron versions yeah very different year this year though henry with all those delivery challenges that are, that, that are with us our fertilizers actually generally contain blends of multiple nitrogen sources uh, to give consistent or specific responses over time and so the analysis on the bag doesn't really tell you the complete story about the kind of response that you could expect. Our Sierraform GT 16016, for example, uh, might look scary as a spring starter, but sort of just under half of that nitrogen is actually in slow release form. And and the formulation is such that it can be applied quite happily and and get an even distribution without speckling at 15 to 20 grams per meter squared and so at those rates it would be able to deliver more of a steady away type response over a long period of time maybe sort of six to eight weeks and you know as a result, wouldn't eat too heavily into your annual nitrogen budget. But applied at a higher rate, 25 to 30 grams per meter squared, that would certainly uh, provide a stronger response if it was needed. If you are wanting to utilize slow release or organic sources of nitrogen, you will be needing some soil microbial activity. And so soil temperatures will need to be more consistently into double figures. And so these would come into the game a little later possibly. In general, a steady away kind of response, we will be looking to deliver on average two to three kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week over the course of the application. But for a stronger response, we'll be in the region of um, four to five kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week, which might be needed if you need to get through, you know, some heavy top dressing, for instance. And the aim of these treatments, going back to those waves, is to is to initiate, amplify and elongate the growth waves as they sort of come along, uh, as long as conditions are suitable. And of course, depending on their longevity, uh, a granular can keep working through multiple waves or even sort of merge them together to create a more consistent level of recovery rather than that weak stop-start situation that you get by waiting. 
And so basically you just choose your fertilizer that's tuned to give you the response that you need. You know, liquids and soluble feeds might even be in the game this year if you want to amplify a short wave, for instance. You just need to check that what level of nitrogen you're delivering each week. Our team of area managers are, are, are really really good at this they're they're very much specialists in this area and so if you're in any doubt they will certainly be able to help you tune your spring program or certainly explain explain to you the different options that are available this year depending on conditions that's a really nice summary henry and i couldn't agree more now is the time to be looking out for those potential growth waves and get yourself ready to use them where they come or you could just sit back and wait i think those days are gone now glenn I think they are, Henry. So the one thing that I can definitely foresee about March with complete certainty is that your phone is going to start ringing because we are now entering the leather jacket activity season, aren't we? And you are, or you have become, something of a, of a reference point in this area, haven't you? A reference point? I've been called some things in my time, Henry, but a reference point is a new one for the collection. Yeah, well, I think my favourite is Technical Nugget, Glenn. Yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of Technical Nugget, Henry. Um, <laughs> anyway, we digress a little, don't we? So, yes, March, March can be a very testing time. Uh, what we're looking for is consistent temperatures and uh, that's going to ignite grass growth that can then start outgrowing the level of damage that leather jackets can cause. Because this is all a pretty simple equation. What we're looking at here is the amount of growth minus how much the leather jackets can feed multiplied by the number of leather jackets equals the amount of damage we would likely to sustain. And let's not forget the secondary damage Glenn which can be even more devastating at times can't it you know birds cause plenty of damage at this time um, even if you haven't actually got high levels of infestation of course you're right Henry there's there's a few types of damage we can see during this period of the year and they all look different uh, we've got winter or spring aeration holes not closing in properly. We can see animal damage which is mainly but not exclusively birds pecking. Or we can see general poor plant health. Now, hopefully you've been listening to these podcasts for a little while now. And hopefully you will have had the opportunity to go out and do lots of sheeting. And lots of small scale sheeting on areas. And, and you'll have a pretty good idea of the challenge that is going to lie ahead of you in the month of March. Yeah, we've spoken quite a lot about monitoring for infestations, haven't we, in previous months. And so roll back through November, December, January and February's editions for, you know, more detailed discussion and advice on that subject. Indeed. But what we've got now, Henry, we're now in March. This is the period where all of that information comes into play. Hopefully, we've built a really good picture of population levels, where those challenges are, and that will help us begin our plan of attack. Yeah, because we don't have any chemical control available to us, do we, at this time? No, that's right. We're currently in the process of applying for our next emergency authorization for a celebrant, which will, fingers crossed, be with us later in the year. But for now, in the spring period, we are relying on cultural methods. OK, so what are those cultural methods then um, that you feel could have a benefit in the event of a leather jacket in 
infestation coming to light at this time? Well, the first thing to note, Henry, is that no one method will manage this problem by itself. We have to recognise that all methods in this day and age, including preventative applications earlier in that grub's life cycle, all of them are just tools to reduce populations and manage damage. No single measure is available to eradicate the problem. We have to think about how we integrate the different methods at different times to get the best out of them. Now, what percentage each method reduces things by is questionable. But I'm confident that all of these methods will help reduce the problems you face. Okay, great. So what are we talking about then? Well, the first method I'm going to talk about is the 2021 Twitter viral sensation large-scale sheeting. Uh, this is a method where you lay out a large black plastic sheet, something like a silage cover, over your greens on mild nights. And what we're trying to do is to kid those leather jackets into coming to the surface like they would do in a normal pattern. But we want them to believe it's still nighttime and with plenty of moisture around them so they hang around longer than they would normally. So the darker the sheet, the more moisture it will hold, the more success you're likely to have. And then we go in in the next morning, we pull those sheets back, we grab the blowers, the snow shovels, the brooms or the verticut units, and we do everything we can to ensure that those leather jackets don't re-enter the sward. And I've heard, you know, people have had more successes by heavily watering the day before. Sometimes people say that they use a wetting agent the day before. And I think that's just helping move that moisture evenly and deeply through the root zone. It can help improve the number of leather jackets we pull up. OK, so how easy is it in reality? Well, it's labour intensive. It impacts golfers. Uh, it can be a great communication tool with the members just to show the scale of the problem. So it is worth getting them involved. And the chances of success can be improved. Um, you know, if we're doing lots of that small scale sheeting, which isn't labor intensive, it's quite quick and easy, then we can start identifying the higher population areas and we can target them first. OK, so is it a worthwhile exercise then, Glenn? Well, it's certainly satisfying from a turf manager's point of view. Um, if they're seeing leather jackets beat their surfaces up, the physical action of removing bucket loads seems to fulfil the I've achieved something criteria. And I suspect we do reduce the population. And I'm guessing, but I'm going to have a guess at 60%. OK, so if, if we have 100 grubs per square metre, you think that sheeting could reduce that down to 40 per square metre? I think so. Um, a lot of them will sit in the lower soil profile, so you just won't get them up. A lot will shoot down very quickly. Um, but you can get a decent lump of these up. And you, you'll make a dent in that population, uh, particularly if you do a really good job of cleaning them up and get on there quickly with lots of people but don't forget Henry if we use the 100 per square meter example if you remove 60% then you're down to 40 per square meter if you do it again and reduce that by another 60% you're down to 16 per square meter do it again reduce it by another 60% and you're down to 6 per square meter it's a downward spiral the less leather jackets you have, the less effective this is. So knowing where you have high numbers 
is critical to getting the most out of your labour inputs here because it is time consuming and time is precious. Okay, so you need to focus on those areas of high infestation uh, that you found with your smaller sheets rather than just going around all 18 greens in order, for example. Exactly, but, but don't expect miracles and remember you're doing nothing to stop things moving back in. These things do redistribute themselves on a regular basis. They can wander some way overnight and they're quite happy moving from an area of high population to an area of low population. Yeah, that's a really big point, isn't it, Glenn? The whole reinfestation problem. Okay, so what other cultural controls do we have available to us, Glenn? Okay, nighttime or dark mowing is the big one that I feel gets overlooked quite a lot, Henry. It's not a big one from a population reduction point of view, but it is low labour input. And it's simply a case of prioritising the order you cut things in in order to get the best results. How do you mean? Okay, well, these little pests are very happy roaming the surface whilst it's still damp and light levels are low, you know, early in the morning. And if we know we have high populations on the 16th, for example, but the 16th doesn't normally get cut until 10.30 in the morning because it's right at the end of the normal cutting route, then switch it up a little bit. Make sure that the 16th is the first one to get cut. We might only reduce populations by, you know, those population levels by 10%, but it's an easy win and a task that would have been going on anyway. Again, it's a strategy that becomes more effective if you've been small-scale sheeting and you have a really clear picture of where your challenges lie. Yeah, and again, I, I guess people can look to their own experiences here and uh, of, certainly of when they see most surface activity is that after rainfall that's been well dispersed through the soil profile possibly with the help of a wetting agent for instance yeah sometimes we do see that don't we and, and maybe on those days where we've got some wetting agent out and we've had high levels of rain it's worth getting a couple of mowers out to ensure we get as many greens cut in those dark damp conditions as possible they're not big wins, Henry, but they're little and often wins, and they come with just a slight change in operational procedures. Yeah, okay. Worth thinking about then. Mm. Um, so what about aeration? Can that help? Uh, this is where understanding your population levels is so important, Henry. With some really good data in our hands, we can start to think about our aeration strategies. If you have high levels of leather jackets, in my experience... Um, and you have lots of aeration holes that haven't been backfilled with sand, then the problem manifests itself as leather jackets living in those tine holes and eating around the entrance on the surface, which means that hole is never allowed to recover, meaning that a putting surface is get, can get really tricky to manage. And you, I guess you don't even need huge numbers of these pests when you've got lots of holes to do that kind of damage. Now, if you haven't got aeration holes in that same population level, the damage is more about reduced plant health and root reduction, which is definitely frustrating and it is certainly not desired, but it's easier to manage a putting surface, particularly if the population level isn't excessive, um, than it is with aeration holes. And, and managing the plant health becomes a slightly different game because you can manage it with different fertilizer strategies and maybe cutting heights and things like that until growth arrives. So just think about what population levels you're at and whether holes are going to make that damage affect you in a different way. 
Okay, it feels like you're saying that at this time of year, using aeration as a tool, we can only influence how the damage appears on our surface. Do you have any idea of population numbers or thresholds that, that, that might mean that we should change our plan of attack? No, I really don't. It's so difficult um, because some people experience different problems with different levels and, and gaining this understanding is only going to come from experience and understanding the numbers on your site. Um, as an industry, we are right at the beginning of this journey, which is why collecting data using sheets is so important. Yeah, so what other options do we have then, Glenn? Okay, we also need to look to fertility here, Henry. Increase your nitrogen. You know, don't get caught out here. If you've got large populations of leather jackets, don't get caught in this race to the bottom with nitrogen. So many people in the industry play that game. You know, if you've got something feeding on your plant, you've got to try and outgrow it. We know we get these waves of weather that will help with growth. We need to grab them. But in my mind, just don't play with ni low nitrogen in this situation. If you know you've got a challenge ahead, get the right amount of nitrogen down and get that program going. If you've got high populations, just mitigate every other stress you can to put your surfaces in the best place possible to cope. But for me, everything leads back to monitoring and knowing the numbers of leather jackets in your turf. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? On that point, you know, it doesn't have to be the end of the world, does it? We, we, we've seen... You know, the use of well-timed nutrition being really helpful on a number of sites, you know, to help those infested areas just strengthen up or, or, or stop them from deteriorating. And you can be really targeted, can't you? You could sort of think about maybe the application of a, a sort of liquid to stimulate growth for a liquid nitrogen, to stimulate growth for a short period of time whilst conditions become more conducive to unassisted growth. You know, that's not certainly not going to be the end of the world. Or, you know, in more serious situations or sort of greater levels of infestation, uh, uh, you know, a controlled release fertiliser might be more appropriate for uh, a greater response over a longer period of time. It just depends, doesn't it? You've got to use your judgment about the general productivity of the site whether you think that you could make a, a difference by adding a little bit of extra nutrition into the game at the right time anything else to think about glenn well we should discuss insect parasitic nematodes henry and, and you and i have both got some experience of this recently uh, syngenta have recently acquired bionema so i now have an access to a range of nematodes that we are working with and trialing with in the background just to try and understand them properly and to try and help improve the control levels we can get out of them and i'm really looking forward to sharing that data as and when it comes in yeah that's good you, you know icl have been supplying you know the sort of insect parasitic nematodes for a number of years now for for leather jacket controllers nemesis j and for chafer crop controls using a different species in the form of nemesis g but mainly we've been supplying them into the professional lawn service market you know where sort of application and sort of use in small areas makes them sort of more 
practical and appropriate, I think. Now, now it's highly likely that somewhere around the country there's going to be a golf course manager whose greens are under very high pressure through the month of March from those feeding leather jackets. And in that situation, it is inevitable that they are going to go looking for a solution to help lower that pressure. Yeah, or a well-meaning chair of greens resorting to Google to find the answer. That's right. They'll find the obvious answer that the golf course manager hadn't or couldn't find. And they'll tell all their golfing buddies that they've cracked the problem and there will be pressure to try this form of biocontrol. But there are a number of limitations involved around this technology, aren't there, Henry? That is right, Glenn. Firstly, they're mainly effective against young grubs at the first and second instar stages of their life cycle. And that moment passed months ago, didn't it? Leather jackets are at that vulnerable stage to those nematodes around October or November. And by March, the grubs have moved on in their growth stage and, and become fairly tolerant. Secondly, soil temperatures need to be in the right range for the nematodes to be active or predatory. And so the soil temperatures need to be around consistently around 10 degrees C. And we've already established that we just don't get those soil temperatures generally in March. And so we don't tend to recommend the use of the insect parasitic nematodes at this time. Okay, so so we're not at soil temperatures yet that are suitable for nematodes to be active. And even if they were active and could reach the leather jacket, which is another tricky part of the equation, by the way, uh, the leather jackets are probably too mature to be vulnerable. Yeah, but course managers or greens chairs will sometimes grab at anything in desperation. So our words of wisdom, if you're in this situation, is to steer clear of the nematodes in spring. If you use them, you'll probably be disappointed. In the meantime, we'll keep doing more work to try and improve their ability to move through the soil profile and hunt down the pest. We're also looking at ways of making those leather jackets more vulnerable. So maybe, just maybe, we could improve our success rates by combining some strategies. But we're pretty confident that the month of March soil temperatures are always going to be too cold to get much effect out of them and even with the best will in the world march insect parasitic nematodes probably going to leave you disappointed okay glenn yeah that's the truth isn't it but to arm those guys who need to defend themselves against the chair of greens clutching that printout of a nematode pamphlet that they found on the internet when would we see temperatures that are in that right range for the nematode to become active? Well, soil temperatures are pretty variable. In fact, I've seen some eight degree soil temperatures in the middle of February this year. Um, But consistently and on average, we don't reach viable temperatures until towards the end of May consistently. Um, And, you know, by the time we've got to that point, that marsh crane fly, that will have already hatched and relayed its eggs. So once we get into May, end of May, it's a possible strategy to be reducing populations of that that marsh crane fly. Um, But as things stand, not really a viable solution for the problems we're likely to encounter in March and highly likely not April either. Yeah, March and April is the time for rolling the sleeves up, I think, and just trying to keep on top of the situation as best we can. 
Um, okay, what about the future, Glenn, on that longer-term horizon? Well, we continue to work on that acelloprin full registration, um, and there is a number of new biological options that we continue to screen. Uh, we continue to look at older technologies as well, like nematodes, to see if we can improve their effectiveness too. None of these things, I suspect, are the ultimate solution, but they could all be part of a complex program, all with their own challenges, but I'm seeing enough, along with the progress we're making on modelling leather jacket behaviour, to be confident to say one day we will get this under control. It's going to take a lot of work from all involved, and it's going to take effort in things like monitoring, sprayer setup, understanding your soil temperatures. But for the first time in a while, I think for those who put the effort in, starting to truly believe at some point we're going to crack this. Well, that is a good positive to finish on. Thanks for that, Glenn. So, Glenn, we talked about the influence of the weather conditions in March and then moving through April and May. And it is certainly a time when prolonged spells of dry weather can loom large over the horizon. We can experience low levels of rainfall, sometimes high temperatures, and also those dreaded desiccating winds at this time. So this is a time when we need to start keeping an eye on moisture management and getting our plan in place to prevent any problems from sneaking up on us in this area. Yeah, it's such an important agronomic challenge to think about through March and April. It, you know, managing that potential to dry out because it can sneak up on us without realising. And we just haven't got loads of secondary stresses going on. You know, whilst temperatures can on occasion sneak up to high levels, they never stay there long through March. Uh, that drought can really sneak up on us. But you won't see it until you get that first prolonged hot day. And I remember when I was a course manager, we would always hit a day in April somewhere when all of a sudden things would seemingly dry out. And the honest truth is they hadn't just dried out. We'd been building up to that for weeks, but it hadn't shown itself because the other stresses weren't in place. But that was the day that we would go mad. We'd really panic. We'd go and find all those hoses that had been eaten by mice over the winter. We'd go out to the valve boxes, would have all rusted up and seized. And there's lots of things in reality we could have done in advance to be ready for that situation. I think if you do allow things to dry down early, it's just not a great foundation for the rest of the summer. That we go into that period soon where soil temperatures are, are suitable for decent root growth. And we really don't want to be limiting that potential for root growth by not having enough moisture in there that would allow them to grow. So just don't let moisture be that limiting factor. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've mentioned it before, haven't we? But the key here, again, is monitoring, isn't it? We just need to get those moisture meters out, don't we? And, you know, Not all the time, every now and again, to start tracking those moisture contents rather than, you know, some dry soils sneaking up on you in April. 
Absolutely. Wetting agents are worth thinking about here, Henry. I think a lot of people I talk to wait to see that drought stress before they start applying those wetting agents. But I would always recommend pulling it in earlier. The most effective wetting agent applications are made when your soil has decent moisture levels in there. That gives the chance for that wetting agent to be fully distributed throughout that profile. If we wait till things are a bit droughty or starting to dry out, that wetting agent just doesn't have the same chances to be distributed through the soil profile. We can then start to get slightly hydrophobic areas and we're missing opportunities for root growth. So an early start to the wetting agent program towards the end of the month possibly might be needed uh, in order to prevent problems occurring and we know that with the development of soil hydrophobicity or plant stress that it is certainly far better to prevent than to try and cure. Absolutely. Get those moisture probes out, check the batteries in them and get started. And, you know, how often you take them out is really going to depend on your site, how quick you dry out, what sort of spring it's been, what labour you've got. Um, but I would advocate as soon as you finish listening to this, grab your moisture probe, take it out with you and just do a few spots out there and work out exactly where you are now. Uh, yeah, and no doubt there will be like a foot of snow on the ground when people start listening to this, Glenn. Uh, but the point, I think, is to be alive to the potential for drying out and and to be preventative in good time with the use of those surfactants. Yeah, of course. But we, we shouldn't overlook penetrance here, should we? Because we've been talking a lot about things drying out. There is also a good chance it's going to be damp as well. And... There are some areas of the country where the odds are stacked in favour of that. So what are your thoughts on penetrance at this time of year, Henry? Yeah, you, you said it, didn't you, that sort of one in four marches could be sort of, could be, you know, wet. So mm. penetrance might still very much be in the game, commonly used uh, during the autumn and winter months to assist with surface water movement. And so if it is a wet March, we might be more focused on them, I think. Yeah, of course. We, we've been assuming March is going to be a dry month. Yeah, those rose-tinted spectacles kicking in again, Glenn. <laughs> Okay, uh, as we might start seeing the beginnings of some grass growth, it seems like a good time to have a chat with someone about cutting heights, Henry. But not from our normal perspective, our normal agronomic point of view. I thought it'd be worthwhile to talk to someone who really knows their way around a cutting unit. Excellent idea, Glenn. And always dangerous territory agronomically. So I'm glad that you've brought someone else in to shed some light on this one. So who is Tom then and what has he got to say? Well, Henry, Tom is the owner of TCS Turf Care Equipment. He's got over 25 years experience in the technical support side of the business with dealers, distributors and manufacturers. He provides technical support and training to a range of golf clubs from some of the biggest and the best in the country through to the masses. And he is a really helpful guy. He works both here in the UK and in other countries as well. But what makes him a little unique 
is how we provide technical support and services to a range of different manufacturers. Um, and he supports a lot of them on their new product development as well. Well, he sounds perfect, Glenn. How do you know him? Well, I've known Tom for many years, stretching back to my days at the London Club in Kent. He used to come in and give us some support there. Um, he helped me when I started as a course manager at Hockley Golf Club, setting up our workshop and giving us some training on the grinders. Uh, and recently we've worked together to create some materials for the Application Academy, looking at sprayer setup. But when I was talking to him during that process, he let me into a bit of a surprising and worrying trend that he's seeing when he's out supporting golf course managers with cutting cylinders. Ah, now I am intrigued, Glenn. Would you like to have a little listen to our chat, Henry? Yes, let's. Tom, you spend a lot of time in the field looking at real life situations and training golf course mechanics and teams in the art of fine tuning these cutting units. But you're getting more and more call outs from golf course managers at the moment, aren't you? Do you want to talk us through what you're seeing and what you're hearing out there? Yes. Um, so quite a few phone calls and um, contact through social media, just asking about um, from course managers normally or superintendents and um, just saying that they're not quite happy with their units or they're, they're going off cut a bit too soon or the technician may be spending a lot of time adjusting them or they're grinding too much or maybe they're saying markings or various you know, mismatch issues or whatever on the on all, all their services. So I go along, go to say hello, often straight to the technician and they um they say, well, you know, we can't get these units on cut, we're not quite happy with this, um, we're backlapping too much or we're grinding too much. And nearly always, not every time, because there's obviously a lot involved with cut units, but um, nearly always, we, the first thing I do is ask to go out on course and have a look at the, at the services. And obviously, there's lots and lots of basics and fundamentals of cutting units, which most people know um, and are well trained on, and which you have to set first. But uh, but I normally just have a look at what's actually going on with the height of cut. This ranges on all sorts of, obviously, the different areas of the golf course, or even football as well is quite common. I just basically start you know, taking notes on what bench their height of cut they're at, and then look at their surfaces. Um, and then through a, a prism, obviously, which is um, basically two mirrors. Um, and it, 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 if you think about a submarine, when you put the periscope, or they put the periscope up to look out the, the water level, it's basically giving you that sort of view on the, the green. I call it a worm's eye view, um, before, obviously, before the worm gets mowed. Um, so the worm can see, if he sticks his head out the top of the green, he can see what's really going on with the grass. So it's a device that's letting us look down on the turf and look at it from a worm's eye point yeah. of view. And it's got a scale on it as well, isn't it? It's, it's got a scale. And obviously, some people say, well, it depends on who stuck the sticker on the back of the scale, where the height of cut is. Um, but it really does give you an idea of what's going on. And, it, and you can use um, the, the scale on the back just to give you a rough idea of where you are. Um, yeah, what it, the best thing it does, it gives you, it shows you how clean the cut is. So you're getting out on the golf course and you're using these prisms to kind of get a worm eye view of what's actually going on on the turf. And you're doing that before you walk into the workshop and have a look at things on a bench. Yeah. And the best team to do this with is, is the technician or the, or the guys um, or girls that set up the unit and the course manager. And the first thing we do is look through the prism. Um, we, we have a look at the, the quality and, you know, we rub our hands across the turf or whatever, like, you know, a lot of agronomists do. And I say, so what height is this mower set to? And they say, oh, 3.3 if it's greens, or 3.4, or, or, you know, even 4 mil sometimes. I say, oh, well, looking at my prism, it's below 1 millimetre. Uh, well, it can't be right, prism's wrong. You know, how hard do you press the prism down sort of thing? And honestly, particularly in, you know, the tournament season, when everyone's chasing green speeds, it regularly is below 1 millimetre. And these are actual cutting heights yes. we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. So from a worm's eye point of view... 
looking at that prism, you're regularly seeing cutting heights around or even below that one millimeter. Yeah. And then at that point, um, they're then horrified, absolutely horrified. Um, they said, we can't be. We'll set the machine to 3.2 millimeters or 3.3 or, you know, 3.1 or whatever. So, yeah, so then we, we look at that and then... Then they say, well, your, your prism must be out, or how do you measure? And yeah, and fair enough, you know, the prisms aren't accurate. They just give you a good idea. Um, and particularly what the, you can see through the prisms is you can see if there's any stragglers or un, uncut grass. That's what they're fantastic for. So that's a green. So we can do the same with fairways, approaches. I'm not an agronomic person, but I can see that heights have cut on approaches and collars are coming down and down at the moment. Or I've, I've seen a few anyway. So we look at all these different surfaces and I start taking notes. And I ask, what, what is a bench setting? Um, and then I'd get a rough actual setting through the prism as well. So what we're talking about here is the difference between the bench setting, what that unit is set up at in the workshop, and what you're seeing from a worm's eye point of view, what the turf is actually cut. And you're seeing a significant difference between the two. Is that fair to say? Yes, a lot. Much more than anyone think, and much more than I used to think as well. And particularly more with some of the changes in machinery and some of, you know, the even the power sources with you know with the, the electrics and the, the hybrids and the batteries and and the actual cut units as well you know it's it's fairly fairly um often i see greensmire set to 3.2 3.3 and they're actually you know below 1.6 or 1.5 so we've got golf course managers saying to their mechanic or themselves uh, i want to be cutting at 3.3 mil 3.5 mil they're setting that up on the bench, and when they're actually out there in the field, they're cutting around one millimeter. Yeah. And is that is that a trend that you think has changed, or is that always been that way? I think it's changed. I mean, you know, we've been we've been around a, a little bit now, and you know, we've come from eight blades. It was quite a common practice to have eight blade reels on greens mowers, and um, you know, when I started off, and then we went to eleven and fourteen, fifteen, whatever. So. I do think it's changed, um, but I just think people don't realise and haven't realised, and, and I haven't either. You know, it's only these last few years of being an independent guy that I've really managed to, you know, really look into this um, phenomena. Um, but to, to be honest, with you as a, as a, you know, I'm basically a mechanic or a technical person. Um, the only thing I, I'm not around to tell anyone what height to cut to cut their their surfaces at. But what I do get worried about, and pretty much why I was called in is when it goes below the parameters of the actual capabilities of the machine. So this brings us back to that initial point. You're getting called in generally because people aren't happy with the quality of cut or how long machines are staying on cut. But what you're finding is they're cutting much lower than they realise. And are those two problems connected then? Totally connected, um, especially from the maintenance point of view. So, for example, Greensmire, most of the Greensmire blades now that everyone fits which has changed over the last few years, are rated down to 1.5 or 1.6 millimetre actual height of cut. And that physically means that there's not more than 1.6 millimetres of, of material on the blade. So that concept means if it's rated to 1.6 millimetres, that bottom blade, that bottom of the cylinder, if it's any lower than that actual cutting height, that is physically touching the floor. Yeah, it means that blade has got quite severe contact with the sword. And as we all know, the swords are quite strong. The sword will push that blade into the reel um, quite dramatically. Um, and then basically, it's exactly the same as over-tightening cutting units. And we all know we, sh we shouldn't over-tighten cutting units. It's exact and that's just, uh, basically, that's all that's going on. So it's perfectly uh, reasonable, or it's, it's a normal situation to be at three and a half mil bench setting 
but actually cutting around one millimeter, meaning that you are pushing that bottom blade into the cylinder and reducing quality of cut. So we're now talking about a situation where accidentally you could be cutting at one millimeter and quite quickly having a cylinder that's going out, out of cut. Exactly. I see a lot of very conscientious people with their paper, with their shims, setting up the unit immaculately well. You know, all perfectly setting it, goes straight onto a green. The blade is then pushed hard against the sword because it's gone below the parameter of that blade, whatever the parameter is, depending on what blade it is. Um, and that blade then physically gets pushed into the, the cylinder. And then obviously at that low height of cut as well, there's, there's quite often top dressing present, uh, there's worm cast present on other surfaces. Um, and then that adds almost like forward backlapping. So then you can have uh, a razor sharp greens mow, you can have two greens later, and it's off cut. And then you've got a very, you know, everyone gets frustrated. You know, is it the machine? Is it the technician? Is it the quality? Is it, you know, and it goes round and round and round. And basically, most of the time, it's to do with going below the parameters of the blade. So what I'm trying to understand, I think, is if I roll back the clock five years, pre the kind of or certainly when I was in a budget where I couldn't afford this latest and greatest te mowing technology was that the same then so if I had two greens mowers one that was 10 years old and one that was brand new one of the very modern machines and I was cutting next to each other with the equivalent cutting height bench settings would I be saying the same problem across the two no you wouldn't um all, all the units I grew up with um say grew up with you know the ones I started working on when I was an apprentice uh, they were much lighter and had less blades. So to think about it, put more blades in a reel is actually a significant increase in weight. And if there's more weight on the cutting unit, the cutting unit sinks further into the surface and the rollers sink into the swall. No matter how hard your surface is, um, the rollers will sink. Um, so no, it has changed dramatically. So there's, the more complex that unit, the more weight they're in there, the more chance we've got of pushing down into that sward and bringing that bottom blade in contact with it. And and that I think is a situation a lot of people will probably stumble into as they invest in better greens mowing technology yeah and it's a it's a it's sort of a, a trap to fall into and and it's a really a, a difficult trap to get out of as well because if you or if i go in as an independent advisor and say we're you know we're mowing too low uh, the reasons you know the consequences are the machines going off cuts um you know, we've got poor, and then we've also got poor quality of cut as well. So we're not cutting the leaf correctly because we've, we've we're now using um, a cutting unit that's not optimally set up. So then it's ripping the grass, which is a whole other world of problems. So this is the big one for me, I think, Tom. In the real world, when you're actually out there, how are you advising? And if there are people listening to this, how would you advise they go about setting their machines up now? Then, because surely we need a bench setting in order to get that set up evenly and consistently on the bench but how do they adjust that so that it's doing what they actually want in the field my objective is to get them just above the minimum height of cut for the blade they've got on the machine so you've got to find that minimum height of cut so the way you can find it is by you know the mower stays on cut it's sort of like you have to back engineer it to find the height of cut so if that uh, minimum machine setting is 1.6 what you're trying to do is get it so that, that bottom blade isn't touching the sword so you are your actual cutting height is above the minimum cutting height for the machine and then work it backwards to see what that works out at. yeah there are some other ways some they're not very technical actually it'd be embarrassing to say but you, you don't and anyone that knows me knows that i always spray um spray paint on the underneath of the bottom blade um because when they come from the manufacturers and you they are painted anyway and that gives you a real indication of how much that blade is in contact with the sword. So okay. that's probably the most scientific way of doing it. 
it's it's a you know and some technicians that I speak to regularly now, every time they see the machine, they, they spray the bottom blade. So the next time they see it, even at the end of the day or two days later, they know we're too close to the swall. And, you know, we can sometimes just go up 0.1 of a mil and that's enough. That's a really good tip, actually, because it just gives you, doesn't give you a chance to adjust it, but it gives you a chance to evaluate that cut afterwards to see just how close to the mark you are. But, I, but I'm thinking back to the situation and things can change on a pretty regular basis can't they so what might be right one day we could have irrigation sticking on or more rainfall than we were expecting the sward gets softer um and that could adjust overnight could it not it can yes so if you're right on the limit so just to give you a comparison two golf courses fairly near each other in my area and both were the same the same machines uh, the same hand mowers uh, one without groomers, one with groomers. That was the only difference. Same blades, good technicians, and we, we both know the the customers or clients. Um, one was below the 1.6 millimetres, and one was above the 1.6 millimetres, minimum height of cut. Both on the same height of cut, but the only difference was one had groomers and one didn't. So the one with groomers obviously had the extra weight of the groomers, and that was knocking it or dropping the, the, the height, just point one of a mil difference, which was actually... One golf course was just above 1.6, one was just below 1.6. The one that was just above 1.6 had no cutting issues. Brilliant. Machines are fantastic, stay on cut for a long time. The other one, every single day, almost regrinding every day. So if we have finely tuned, if it rains overnight, that pushes it over the edge. Yeah, it's not just about saturating, you know, traditionally we always say, oh, you too much saturating with greens or whatever. It's not that severe now. It's you, know, you can have greens that are really fast, really low moisture content, and they're still high sinkage going. Oh, yes, it shows just how close to the edge we're pushing all these things. So as a rule of thumb, if people haven't got the time, there are a lot of under-resourced golf courses out there that don't do, don't have the time to commit to a lot of these things. But is there some kind of fail-safe advice you could offer in order to move them out of that danger zone? What What does that actually look like? If people are... From your experience, if people are cutting at three and a half mil, are they close to that edge or is it four mil? What What is the difference between actual cutting height and bench settings that you're seeing in the field? That is, really is dependent on the model of the machine and the specification of the machine. really is. I mean, you know, different weights, rollers, the hybrid machines have obviously got a fairly heavy um, electric motor. They've often got to counterbalance the other side as well too. So as a mechanic, we don't like groomers very much um, and agronomically they're very good but they also add extra weight so there's nothing wrong with groomers being there but you just need to know that's going to add extra weight so when someone says to me they're at three i'm already starting you know depending on the machine you could be below it but on other on the older machines no three is fine absolutely fine and, and we've run you know older and newer machines next to each other on the same greens at the same time and the, the actual height of cuts is dramatic. Ride on greens mowers tend to behave differently to uh, hand mowers as well. Mixture of fleets as well is very tricky because then you can end up with all different heights um, and it depends which mower goes out on which course on which green and which day to, to what the height of cut is. The hand mowers and ride on mowers doesn't surprise me at all. I've worked at all sorts of different levels of golf club and we always adjusted the hand mowers and the, the, the ride-ons differently. But you've introduced something that, again, I haven't, and I spend a lot of time thinking about this kind of stuff, but I'd never even thought about the additional weight of those electric motors having to be balanced on the other side and how that's going to impact cutting heights. That just hadn't crossed my mind. So if I had one 
hybrid mower or electric motor and one traditionally driven i'd have to think about those completely differently on the fairways it's dramatic absolutely i mean if you had a hybrid mower non-hybrid mower if you had the five inch reels which are the smaller cutting units or the, the seven inch reels at the heights of cut you know one one fairway mower can drop eight millimeters and one can drop six or one can drop five or one can drop four it really is that dramatic so there's no hard and fast rules on how much safety margin to give ourselves there's too much variability in there people should get down on their hands and knees and have a look at one of these prisms i walked into a golf course uh, last week and the first thing before um, you know we weren't i wasn't there to look at the quality of cut but while i was waiting i just walked around the machines i had to look at all the bottom blades if they're polished from front to back, as in they've got a mirror finish, that means that blade has had heavy contact with the sword, um, which is fine. But then that, that blade's been pushed into the reel. It's gone off cut. And also that blade has lost its stability. Oh, sorry, that unit's lost its stability. And it, quite often that's what causes the mismatch when you see sometimes on a fairway, maybe five different units. Yeah, and I see people chasing perfection a lot with these things. It's interesting to think that it actually it comes back to Cutting height. So the things that I'm taking out of this, Tom, are there are no hard and fast rules to correlate bench setting and your actual cutting height. Most people would be really surprised with the cutting height they are at. There's a great tip in there about painting the bottom blade to help you evaluate whether you're on the limit or not. Um, and if you're going out of cut regularly, it's probably because you are cutting too low. Uh, there must be a real mindset shift that needs to take place here with course managers, because I don't know many course managers that are prepared to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to lift my cutting heights from three and a half to four and a half. It's just a, a one of those mindsets that people don't seem to want to do. No, it's very tricky, um, especially around tournament time. You cannot just raise your height of cut. I mean, you know and the agronomy side much more than I do. And, and I don't know that side, but I do know that if you suddenly raise the height of the cut on the green or even a fairway, you know, the, the whole sward has got to then raise to that level and the density and the, the trueness. So it's very tricky and it has caused a lot of problems. Um, you know, when I've gone into customers and said, you know, this is unsustainable, as in this this machine, you know, the, the mechanics are basically grinding every day putting new blade on it every day, every other day sometimes, every week, um, it's not sustainable. A, it costs a fortune, but B, um, the technical, the technicians are spending all this time focusing on cutting units and not doing the, the daily preventative maintenance, which is really important. So yeah, it causes a lot of problems, particularly with the, you know, the, the directors of goals and the pros, because suddenly you've got a, a green that's not as fast. Is there anything that people can do to modify bottom blades, or is there any potential for thinner bottom blades in the future to allow people to get to these cutting heights they desire? Or should we just all recognise the fact that we have reached the limit? We've reached the limit, I think. I mean, I've, I've noticed recently um, one of the manufacturers has now bought a thinner blade for fairways, which is all very well, and, and that's great if you've got a, a tournament and a you know an event coming just as a, a one-off. But in reality, one little nick on one stone or one you know, hit one tee marker, or um, then that blade's bent. So the the cost for lower heights from a uh, engineering point of view would need to exponentially increase for absolute marginal gains. Now. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing I've noticed as well, Glenn, is that more and more people have their own grinding facilities now, which is great. You know, we need to keep cutting this sharp. But if you've got your own grinding facilities, you keep sharpening. And then the more you sharpen, the more you can, you know, you set the units up not correctly with the height, and then you keep sharpening, and you're in this almost like a vicious circle. 
Whereas before, lots and lots of customers didn't have the option of sharpening. They had, you know, a, a, a budget. And when I was growing up, it was twice a year greens mowers and once a year fairways. Um, you couldn't, you know, you had to look at a different way. But now, it is possible to mow low, but you have to pay for it. And you have to sharpen it. But then, you, you know, at certain times of the year, you get the quality of cut issues as well. So we can push things to those limits engineering-wise, but we have to accept the consequences and exponentially increase the investment in time, labour and probably finances in order to get those gains. Whereas we could just back off on the cutting heights and get all of those wins at a fraction of the cost. I guess the important thing is, Glenn, we need to understand the cutting heights at the beginning of the season before we're, you know, tuning in the golf course. We can't just do it halfway through. Now, one last point on that bit. Uh, where would people get one of these prisms from, Tom? Uh, some of the, the grinding manufacturers make them and sell them. Uh, the, all the machinery manufacturers sell them as well. So they're easily accessible. Um, I can't imagine they're too expensive or they sound like a worthwhile investment and they're doing no use whatsoever sat on a shelf as a paperweight. Well, sometimes, Glenn. I mean, I go in and they say, oh, we've got one of those. And probably you know, seven out of ten people have them. And there's, there's another couple of bits I want to touch on before we go. There is a big challenge in the industry, and we understand it from a chemistry point of view at Syngenta. Henry understands the challenge from a fertility point of view. But worm casts are a big management challenge for uh, greenkeepers and greenkeeping teams. We talk about the impact of this on playing surfaces and agronomically, but I'm really interested to know what impact they will have on cylinder units. It's horrendous, Glenn. It really is. I mean, as I was at a golf course last year. They had um, their fail mode wasn't even one year old. And basically, the farmer, I said, I'm really sorry, but I had a look at it with the technician. I said, you've actually worn out a set of reels in one year. And that, that was because, think of it this way, you know, the, the worm casts are effectively backlapping paste. Obviously, in my mind, you know, not effectively, but, you know, you could look at them as a grinding paste. Um, if you're mowing with a grinding paste going through, they're gone. The edge is gone. And again, we couple that with the lower than we believe cutting heights, and we're getting ourselves closer and closer to that grinding paste that sat on the surface. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm saying it's sort of tiny cheeking as grinding paste, but it is effectively a, a grinding material. It all depends on what soil surfaces you're yes. on as well. We've got some very clay surfaces out there, but we've got some very sandy ones as well. And there is a big commitment in the industry to be top dressing these larger areas too. So we move even further into that challenge. But before we go, because I've got some really good insights out of that and I've got a much better understanding, I think people would be surprised at how low they're actually cutting and how easily they could step away from those things. But it comes back to a lot of the things Henry and myself speak about is if you back off on that cutting height, we could make our lives a lot easier, but it's customer expectations. And I don't think we're going to answer that one in this challenge, but Thank you very much for your time, Tom. I think that's been really interesting. And hopefully there's some really nice points for people to take away. And you're always available to get in touch with. We can find you on Twitter and your website and all sorts of other places, can't we? Yeah, thanks very much, Glenn. I'm always available just for a chat. So I'm very passionate about the industry and I, I like to keep learning myself and I like to help other people learn. Brilliant. That's been excellent. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Glenn. Well, that was really interesting, Glenn. It is clear from what Tom says that your actual cutting height is probably very different to what you think it is, a lot lower in reality, which is a huge agronomic issue, isn't it? And it seems that this issue has really 
snuck up on us over the horizon without anyone noticing. Well, apart from Tom, of course. Yeah, thank you, Tom. And it's clear that if you've invested in new machinery in recent years, that it's likely that those cutting units are going to be heavier. And those heavier units mean that the bench set cutting height will probably be a lot lower in reality, at the expense of the turf, but also the machinery itself. Yep, we're probably at that point now, Henry, aren't we? Where many people are physically squeezing their bottom blade between the turf and the cylinder, meaning the machine's minimum cutting height, which is simply dictated by the width of that bottom blade, has been reached. And once we're there, we're putting up with reduced quality of cut, as well as just cutting lower than we expected. So cutting heights have been pushed beyond their limits now from an engineering point of view. Yeah, yeah, but also that agronomic perspective as well. It, it was interesting that the way in which Tom evaluates the mowers is actually very simple and something that everyone can do. So I think it's time to dig out those prism gauges and dust them off and get down and, and have a proper look at what is happening at, at ground level. This is so important, you know, that we don't, well, push the greens over the edge without knowing it. Yeah, exactly. If we want any chance of having a decent rooting system or if we want to stay clear of those kind of stress-related diseases like anthracnose, we've really got to think about this. Yeah, the consequences of this are really far-reaching and, and I can see agronomic trouble on that horizon if we don't get a grip on this. Thanks, Glenn. And, of course, Tom, that was really, really interesting. Well, Henry, that felt like a big one. A big one, Glenn, but a good one. So thanks, everyone, for joining. And if you're coming up to the BTME show at Harrogate, don't forget to come and see us. Oh, that's right. And of course, use the secret password for secret membership to our secret club. Just one last time, Henry, for all of those in their car on the way up to Harrogate. Listener approaching on the horizon. Yeah.